Hey you, welcome to Taylor Shapers of Influence podcast, where we discuss the people, places, and things that will influence us. We'll dissect the integrated worlds of marketing, pop culture, and everything in between, from fashion to sports to entertainment. We're not only creating conversations, we're leading them too. Join us. Hello and welcome to another edition of Taylor Shapers of Influence podcast. August 26, 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, giving women the right to vote. All this month, we are celebrating with a special podcast series, exploring the meaning and impact of this historic law by speaking with a diverse group of women. In the U.S., women's suffrage or the legal right to vote was hard fought over more than half a century. Some states allow women to vote in local or state elections, but women could not vote in national elections until the ratification of the 19th Amendment on August 26, 1920. As we prepare to celebrate that anniversary, we are taking a closer look and asking the women around us about their journey to the ballot box and what the vote means to them. My name is Anna Rose Rubright, and I will be your host. In today's episode, we will be speaking with two women who have very interesting stories. Jenbu Oso and Carla Wilkie both work with me here at Taylor. Jenbu and Carla are both naturalized U.S. citizens. A naturalized citizen is one who was not born a U.S. citizen, but chose to become one. Jenbu works as an IT specialist at Taylor and has been with us for almost a year. She will be voting for the first time in a national election in the U.S. this fall. Our other guest today is Carla, who is Taylor's Chief Strategy and Education Officer. Carla has been with Taylor for two and a half years and has a bit more experience voting. Hi, Jenbu. Hi, Carla. Welcome to Shapers of Influence. Can you tell us where you're from? and how long you have been in the U.S. Yes, thank you. I am from Guinea, uh, preferably referred to as Guinea Conakry because there's so many different Guineas um, in the Western Africa area. But yeah, Guinea Conakry, and I've been living here for, I think, 18 years now. And for Carl, how about you? I've been in the U.S. this time around since December 2008. So, oh gosh, what's... 12 years now, uh, but before that, it was on and off a little bit before that, but I would say 12 years since I officially immigrated. Have either of you lived anywhere else in the world or in the U.S.? Yes, I have lived in Guinea since I was born, and I lived there until I was 12 years old, at which point I migrated to the United States, and then I was living in Pennsylvania, all through school and then I just moved to New York in 2019. I grew up in South Africa and I was born there as well. I lived there until just before I was five years old and we moved to the United Kingdom for a couple of years and I started school in the UK, came back to South Africa, lived there until I was 15, then moved to the US, lived in the US for a number of years, but on the way to the US while we were waiting for our um, visas to be approved. We lived again in the UK for a little while and in Hong Kong for a while. And I came to the US, lived in Rye, New York, uh, finished uh, high school, started college, 
then backpacked cross country and lived in Portland, Oregon for a number of years before returning back to South Africa and then ultimately back to the US. Wow. A little bit of wiggling around here and there. (laughs) What was the decision to move here like? Uh, At first it was exciting and then it became overwhelming very quickly (laughs) and scary. Um, It was scary because I knew I was leaving my family behind. I had to move here with another family. Uh, I knew them back home, but not as much as my family, obviously. And being a 12 year old, I was going through a lot of changes. to say the least. Uh, I was transitioning into a teenager and a lot of stuff was happening with me, so it was tough. Was it just your parents to say, or did they talk to you about it too? They definitely talked to me about it, specifically my mother. She asked me, you know, she talked to me about the U.S. at first and then she was like, you know, do you want to move to the U.S.? And I immediately, of course, I said, yes, of course. And then she was like, you want to leave your family? I was like, uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it was, they, they asked me for my opinion, and I said yes. Wow, that's so brave. Yeah, I know. So I brave. know, but I almost felt like I didn't, I, I had the choice, but I felt like I didn't want to say no, because it was a great opportunity. Because during those times in Africa, right, um, all of my older cousins, that's all they wanted. They just wanted to move to um, the United States, and all of them were, like, looking for visas, so when opportunity came and I was the one that was chosen out of all of my older siblings, it was, it felt like, you know, you have to do it because this is what everybody wanted anyway, you know, yeah. you've been the lucky chosen one. When, uh, just before we came across my best friend in South Africa, my best friend of, well, now it's close to 40 years or maybe a little over, yeah, close to 40 years, we've known each other forever. Her family immigrated to the US because there was a war in Angola and there was mandatory military service for everyone. Mm. And um, there were a number of folk that were just looking at South Africa government, like everything that was going on at the time and Mm -hmm. uh, reassessing what they wanted to do and where the best opportunities for their children would be. And I remember at 13, her saying to me, oh, we're moving to the US and I thought, oh, yeah, and we joked around because we were both in boarding school together. And I said, oh, I'll see you there. And then two years later, two years nice there, we were packing our bags and getting ready to go. And I resonate with the, it's really exciting. And then you yeah. get to go and then you're like, oh my gosh, what's this going to be like? How am I going to cope? I'm not going to know anybody, you know? Yeah. And I was amazed at how uh, we arrived and you speak English, but you don't really speak the same language at all and people look at you like you you've lost it a little bit and they ask you to repeat things all the time and eventually you're like oh it's it's, we're speaking the same language and I like they wanted to put me into um classes for English as a second language when I got to high school because they weren't sure uh, how I would fall and how I fit into the American school system Hmm. wow that's funny because I didn't have a choice I had to do that because I went straight into eighth grade when I came and um, I just remember it feeling very overwhelming and feeling like it was just a lot to handle. Yeah. Yeah. The school system is different in Guinea, right? Oh yeah. It's very different. Um, We spoke French in Guinea. Mm -hmm. So that's what I learned in school. And then, you know, when, so middle school I guess elementary school would be from first grade up until sixth grade so in sixth Mm -hmm. grade you take this exam it's a big deal and then you go into seventh grade which is considered high school Mm -hmm. I was already there and then when I came here eighth grade was still middle school and it was was kind of tough 
because yeah. I hadn't done eighth grade yet and I don't speak the language and I don't have any friends. Yeah. I'm from Africa. It was just terrible. <laughs> yeah. I was under uh, the impression that you moved here uh, with your whole family. I did not. Did you have any input at 12? Uh, yeah. So I did. I had an input as far as whether or not I wanted to move to the United States. Right. And but my family, everybody didn't have a visa. So I was the only one that had to move and I had to move and live with another family because they were kind of like family friends with my mother. And um, so it was. Yeah, I, I don't really think after I moved, I didn't have any decisions anymore. What was it like living here at that young age? It was very tough. It was exciting at first. Like I said, when I got here, it was very cold. It was in December, so it was a winter. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was leaving Guinea, it was very hot for me. So mm-hmm. you know, they bought me like this jacket and I was like, oh my God, this is so hot. But then when I got here, the jacket felt so small because I was so cold. <laughs> so cold. And uh, I remember running into the car and just feeling like my fingers were gonna fall off because it, it was so um, frostbite, I guess. It would call it. I, I came to learn later on, and my feet were so cold. I was wearing sneakers, but it was so cold, and I just remember the temperature difference. And then uh, we stayed in New York for two days, and then drove to Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started school almost like the month after. I think it was in February, and yeah, it was it was really tough to say the least. I also moved at the end of the year and had the flip-flopping of the seasons. So it was yeah. cold, it was crazy. I wanted to ask you, did you feel like you needed to change? Because I was a teenager as well. Did you change any parts of who you were to try to fit in or did you kind of hold on to? I had to. Yeah. Whether or not I wanted to change, I had to change very quickly because, oh my God, thinking back on those days, <laughs> I had to change very quickly because not only were the kids there, I did see some black kids, but it was majority white children. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't have any friends. I had to speak, I had to learn the language. So for the most part, I couldn't talk to anybody. I was so scared. And I remember being made fun of for the most part because I was a teenager. I just come back and I remember people telling me that I, I stink, right? can't believe I just spoke that. <laughs> that's but yeah, this was the reality um, because I didn't know what deodorant was and I, it wasn't something that we had to do back home. You know, back home, you'd go out and play with your friends, sweat all day long, nobody cares, right? Um, but here, because, you know, you had to wear clothes and go to school um, and it, we were more confined, I think, indoors. So I guess you get to you know, and we were close together in the classroom. So this was something that made me very self-conscious. And I would literally not take my jacket off when I go to school because I'd just sit like this. And because I wasn't with my mother, I was very shy to ask the woman I lived with, um, you know, certain things. I'd had to, I remember um, when the summertime came and I started getting, even so I couldn't wear a jacket anymore. So I, I didn't have a choice. Um, I remember going into her room at nighttime and stealing some of her deodorant. <laughs> I got in so much trouble, I remember, uh, for doing that at one point, just so I wouldn't get 
yelled at at school. And my hair, I was made fun of for my hair. Um, I used to have a lot of hair, but it was in fro, in like this big afro. I never had to, I didn't know what perming was. Um, although people did it back home, but you have to be an adult to do it. So my, my sister always braided my hair. Mm -hmm. I came here and no one knew how to braid my hair. And so I would have to try to do certain styles with my hair. And I was made fun of for that tremendously. So I was self-conscious about my hair a lot. <laughs> the jacket I was wearing, I remember the jacket was so big because that's all we could afford. So I was made fun of for those for the clothes I used to wear. And I remember having to try to alter my clothes at some point and try to make myself look a certain way. Oh, it was horrible. It was just terrible. <laughs> That's all I can say about it. I'm just so grateful that I, I grew up and I was able to get a job and afford my own clothes. But uh, I'm also grateful. One thing that I didn't change about myself was the fact that I didn't lose my language, which I'm totally so grateful for. I can speak, still speak French and read in French. And um, my native tongue is Fulani. That's also my tribe. So my mom was very impressed that I went back 10 years later and I was still able to talk to them using my language. How about you, Carla? Do you have to shake? Not as significantly as Jennifer has described, but I remembered also kind of being on the outside, looking in. Um, the I had no cultural, by the time I got here, it was like 15, everybody's in their cliques. There's you know, the, they've got the cool kids and you've got the jocks and you've got, you know, the nerds and what have you. I had finished all of the U.S. higher school requirements already and they made me go back to school to do American literature, American history, art, um, religious studies, because in South Africa at the time, when I was growing up, um, when you got to 13, you made a choice as to whether you were going into the arts and sciences and you started to um, sort of streamline your education experience really young. So you made big decisions really early about what you were going to be or, or how you, you felt you were um, going to commit yourself from a professional standpoint. When I got here, I had to do a whole bunch of things over again, which was awful. Sort of, I felt awkward for, for quite a while. Um, I remembered thinking, well, I've just got to make the best of it. And I didn't have any cultural references because at the time I had listened as a, a, a kid in South Africa to the American Top 40 on a Sunday at a certain time. There was Casey Kasten's American Top 40 and you would listen to that and kind of get a sense of what was going on from a music standpoint. But everything else was really uh, British influenced. So it's like I was the same age and um, looked more like uh, my peers than, than Jennibu's experience. But at the same time, it was completely different. I felt sometimes like a Martian, like uh, their food was different. The things that, uh, that folk referenced was different. Uh, the things that they wanted to do from a social standpoint and a relaxing standpoint were completely different. You know, I used to spend my time as a kid outside, climbing trees, running around, very physical in nature. It was, there wasn't a lot of sort of dressing up and fashion wasn't a really big deal you kind of you had your school clothes you had clothes for church and then you you maybe had one or two things to run around in the week and you, you didn't really focus a lot on that and so I found that very different and it wasn't until I got to college that being different was cool it wasn't cool until um, I got to college and then it was a talking point and it was a way to meet people yeah. to talk about your background and your experience and all those kinds of things that's so true <laughs> 
Why did you choose uh, the U.S., uh, Carla? I, my parents were transferred here in 1988. Um, that's the time, the 15 that I'm talking about. Uh, my dad was transferred here on business and he made a choice um, at the time because politics in South Africa were dubious and they weren't happy with um, how things were progressing. So my parents made a choice to give my sister and I a choice. So we came here with my dad's job and um, they left four years later. My sister and I were in college. So I finished the US uh, education system. I got my BA, but graduated in a recession. Um, my sister, I, I ultimately ended up backpacking around the country and then going back to South Africa because that was the first job I was able to find um, that I you know, didn't have to do four or five jobs. I could have one job and sort of establish myself professionally. But my sister uh, stayed in the US. Uh, she came here when I was, she was, she's two years younger than me. So when we came across initially, she was 13. And when my parents left and ultimately when I returned to South Africa to, uh, from a work standpoint, my sister was in graduate school and decided to stay. She married uh, an American man, um, naturalized, had children here. And ultimately my parents ended up retiring in the US. So when I, I got to a point where I was the absentee aunt, I wasn't seeing my sister's children grow up. Um, I was watching South Africa change and not in ways that I necessarily appreciated at the time. We were working really, really hard and um, after Mandela passed away, I didn't think our tax dollars were being used in the right way. And I got frustrated at the slowdown of change. And eventually I just really miss my family and I wanted to be closer to them. And that was ultimately the push that, that got me to come to the US. At that time, I was already an American citizen because I, I got my, I naturalized in 1998. So it wasn't as difficult to transition the second time around because I had a better sense of what I was coming to and I was an adult. I felt like I could cope in a different way. Uh, can you tell us about your journey to become a naturalized citizen and what made you decide to take that step? When my parents left the US, my dad uh, was in foreign exchange and traveled a lot with his job and uh, they, he moved uh, back to the UK, back to South Africa and then ultimately retired in the US. But at the time that they left, uh, my sister and I both had green cards. And I remembered at the time, you know, Genevieve, you said when you, all your friends are trying to get visas and you, know, you ultimately get one and you realize just how valuable it is and you start to see you start to see your country, you start to see the world from the perspective of the US, which is very different from um, how you experience the news and how you experience your country and living there when you're physically there. And you start to, for me, you started to recognize a lot of different freedoms that um, I had seen so many people deprived of um, in South Africa. And while that hadn't always been my experience, uh, you really started to appreciate what it was to be American, what it was to have the freedoms and the liberties uh, that Americans had. And over time, after you've had your green card for a long time, it starts to get really frustrating when you're paying taxes and yet you have absolutely no say whatsoever when it comes to who's representing you. I started to get to a point where I felt like overwhelmed and like I really, really wanted to get in there and have my voice heard and at least, you know, sway influence the direction of where things were going. So that became incredibly, incredibly compelling. And in 1998, that was it for me. I decided that um, I wanted to naturalize. 
My sister at the time had gone through the naturalization process and she was settled in an American citizen. I was living and working in Portland, Oregon. She was living with uh, my best friend and, and her family and they were all naturalized. And I got to the point, I'm like, that's it, I'm going to do it. At that point, I started going through the process of naturalization and it was quite a wild ride. I remember um, saying to friends in South Africa, you know, you've got a car, you've got a down payment on an apartment, you've done all of those things. And what I have is a green card because to, to get and maintain your green card over time is expensive. You Once you have the green card, you have to be in the US for a minimum of five years before you're able to to um, process it. And then you there are a lot of restrictions about where you can travel, where you can't travel. And, you know, you fill out all the paperwork. In my case, I um, got a, an attorney to help me process the paperwork because at that time, my parents weren't living in the country. I was on my own. I didn't want to make a mistake when I was processing the paperwork. That was sort of the worst thing that could happen was you, you make an error or you, you don't attach the right documents and then everything suddenly stops in its tracks after all of those years waiting and preparing and paying taxes and doing all of that. During that year, and it was an election year, at that time, I, I put all my, my paperwork in and the process began. What about you, Jendo? So for me, the motivation behind naturalization process was just to feel secure. Um, also, kind of like Carla said, I wanted to be able to vote, but I also wanted to have the freedom of being able to travel wherever I wanted to go because having a, an American citizenship means that much. There's so many countries you can travel to. You don't have to worry about getting a visa. Oh, yeah. People see your passport. They respect yes. you. Trust. Of course, I was I was buying the cheaper tickets. so economy, traveling and stuff like that. And when you come and you present your passport, the diff I felt the difference. Literally uh-huh. when I traveled with my American passport, I felt the difference. The way people looked at you mm-hmm. and the way they looked at you when you have an African passport, totally different. So that alone just made me feel like, okay, I did the right decision. But I decided to do it because ultimately I, I was living in, in the United States for over 10 years. And I wanted to be able to not only vote, but also to feel like I'm an American officially, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I did my application myself um, only because I'd helped a couple of people before myself to fill out that application. And I couldn't afford an attorney. The application process was already really expensive. You have to pay like $860 for the biometrics and the application and everything. So that was already enough for me to be like, okay, I have to learn to do it myself. So I went and I did the application. I did take a really long time before I submitted it because I just wanted to make sure I did everything correctly. Mm-hmm. I think the whole process took me about eight months from yeah. the application to get the biometrics, to come in for the interview and for the naturalization ceremony. Did it take longer? Yeah, it, it is a, an election year and um, that allowed Amnesty for a lot of people to um, declare their status and actually start processing um, paperwork to formalize uh, legitimate uh, status in the country and that slowed down things quite a bit. My sister's process I think was six or seven months and I remember mine being probably about a year. It took quite a while. That's very true because I have some friends now who submitted their applications late last year and they still haven't even been called for their interview. So you know it's going on almost a year now and they're still waiting. Yeah. No, I was saying election year applications are kind of tough. Well, this year has got all added twists and turns as well. My parents naturalized and were sworn in um, earlier this year, 
but mm. my husband has submitted all of his stuff and his paperwork. Everything is frozen and processed right now. Yeah. Were you able to vote in your countries? I wasn't. I was too young to vote. Me as well. I was too young to vote. Do you each have dual citizenship? I do not. I actually found out for sure that I do not have dual citizenship. Actually, the day that I got sworn in, um, you do. I think they ask you. They asked me whether or not I, you know, am willing to become fully American and leave the other citizenship? I said yes. I had dual citizenship for a number of years and it was specific to the fact that I wasn't able to find um, a job after I graduated here and it was from a working visa standpoint and it was actually easier to become a dual citizen than to do the reverse work visa. So the attorneys that um, I worked with in South Africa just suggested I, you know, just get dual citizenship because it would be easier to do that. And so I had dual citizenship for a number of years. But when I formally immigrated to the U.S. Um, in 2008, I surrendered that. And so now I, I just hold an American passport. What was the nationalization process like? Oh, it's... I think the interesting thing about the U.S., and I can say from a South African standpoint that it, it, it doesn't work quite as well, it's a very uh, stringent process. Um, I happened to naturalize during an election year, um, and it was George W. Bush Sr. Um, that was uh, on the ballot at the time, and so they tend to uh, encourage uh, and sort of push through a lot of people during election years because I, I think that they want to vote. That's my personal opinion. Uh, but the process was, it's pretty emotional. It's very stressful. You fill out a lot of paperwork. There are a lot of constraints. You can, you can and can't travel at certain times. You're only allowed to be out of the country for a certain number of years. You're, um, you get put under scrutiny. I think for me, when I first got my green card, I had to go through a battery of blood tests because I came from uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So they wanted to make sure that you didn't have yellow fever, HIV, hepatitis, you know, um, or, like all the various forms of hepatitis and all those kinds of things. So it was, it's invasive um, initially, then you get the initial paperwork and then there's a long period of stress and anxiety because your whole life is on display. They do background checks, they check your taxes, they uh, do a number of criminal background checks and all those kinds of things. So for a while you feel really anxious and like you can't put, you worry about every decision that you make, you wanna do the right, I mean, typically speaking as human beings, we wanna do the right thing, but you feel like you're especially vulnerable during the time where they're evaluating your citizenship. Um, and then when you, then you go for the test, you study this monster, you like study a book on American history and you, uh, you like really have to be all buttoned up and you worry that you're going to get all those questions wrong. Then you eventually go to, go to the interview. They ask you the questions you pass. And there's the sense of massive, massive relief when it happens. But then what was most interesting to me is when I got sworn in, you also feel like a traitor for leaving your country. So I found that to be incredibly emotional to renounce um, the place that I was born, that I was raised, that I grew up in. And even if you don't agree with the politics, your, um, your sense of humor, your uh, relationship to the land and the music and the people and the culture uh, in many respects is, is really what you're giving up. That's a very difficult thing to do. So even when you choose it, it's still an incredibly intense and an incredibly emotional experience. And then when you vote for the first time, that also is a, a really big deal and a, a big thing. So I, I found it to be 
life, life changing, um, joyful, stressful, um, emotional, uh, and kind of, a, kind of amazing really that you, you have the opportunity to do that, that there, you know, that there are opportunities for people to make very specific choices for themselves and their families and for their lives. And then to be afforded the opportunity to really embrace that, the, the lifestyle that you want to lead and the, the values that you want to embrace for your family. How did you find out all of the information you needed? I trusted an attorney. Um, I know that the, from my husband's standpoint, he did all of the research himself, uh, went online, filled out all the paperwork. And I think it's one of the most magnificent, magnificent things about the US judicial system is that it works. If you do exactly what you're told to do and you follow the process, all of the stuff is fluid and you manage um, to move through without any interruption. Um, at the time that I did it, I was just so nervous that I was going to, to make a mistake that I saved up um, for quite some time. And um, I worked, I even remember the attorney's name that I worked with who supported me um, during that period just to make sure that everything was exactly 100%. For me, I did the same thing. I had to do a lot of research and I was already familiar with the application process because I'd helped other people do it already. But for myself, I was still a little nervous. So I did a lot more research. Was there one question you were afraid of being asked? during a test? Not me. I wasn't afraid because the questions were just something that I already spent all these years learning. And I and I took my time learning, reading the question, even though I felt like I knew what the questions were going to be, I still took the time to study and learn the questions and answers. So I wasn't, I wasn't nervous at all, to be honest. I remember at the time being worried that they would ask me whether I was going to register as Republican or Democrat because I didn't that. <laughs> I, like, I was like busy investigating all of that so I thought oh gosh if they ask me that and I say the wrong thing and the person who's interviewing me is of a different you know party mindset or affiliation that might be a problem and I worried that I would misquote a date because I like Jennifer I also studied I went through the book religiously I did all the stuff I was prepared I was ready to rock and roll and I thought oh my goodness if I duff a date somehow that will be terrible but I was mostly worried about the being questioned about political affi affiliation in case it was potentially polarizing for the person who was interviewing me that's true, because it's their decision ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. They decide whether or not they want to grant you. Did you have people in front of you that were turned away? Because when I entered the day that I interviewed and took my test, there was a, a man, two people ahead of me, that was de denied citizenship. And oh he was, my God. So it was terrible. So I worried, I worried terribly about that. I was like, oh, oh no, that's, yeah. that is terrible. I was actually one of the first people they called. I think during the round, I was one of the per first people that were called. So maybe one of three people that were called. So I didn't actually see. That's terrible. If I would have seen that, I'd probably been ner nervous, but I didn't see anybody get fined, fortunately. <laughs> oh my God. It was terrible. It was like really intense. What barriers did you face, if any, while becoming a naturalized citizen? Hmm. I don't think I faced much because um, I think the only thing that I would, I would say was challenging a little bit was during the application process, I couldn't travel. Mm. I couldn't be at, well, I could have traveled, but I think you cannot stay, or you, there was some kind of restriction. And I remember feeling frustrated because I wanted to go back. My dad was sick at that time, but um, I couldn't go back because I didn't want them to send me a letter for the interview and I was out of 
you know, town and stuff like that. So that was the only frustrating part. I remember the same. There's a lot of, a lot of travel restrictions. You have a certain number of days that are during the period um, that you're nationalizing it. You're allowed to be out of the country. And I remembered that I had traveled. I'd been working abroad, trying to establish myself professionally and literally checking, like checking off the calendar and counting the days, because if you, if you're late, it, it um, hinders the process of naturalization. So that is, is one thing I would say the, there is an emotional barrier a little bit though, because I did find the decision to let go of my country of birth hard, even though you're, you're living in the country, you, you want to be a citizen. It feels somehow like you're a traitor, like you're, you're turning your back on everything that you knew before. And it's, it's more in your head than in reality, but I think cultural assimilation and adopting a new country's uh, history and culture, um, national holidays, all those kinds of things can be hard. And there's things that you really miss about your childhood, your upbringing, those parts. I, like, there were moments for me where, where that was a little bit difficult. I'd say the same, but I didn't think too much about it. Um, now, though, I do. Let me ask you a question. Do you still celebrate South Africa's Independence Day? No, actually, I don't. <laughs> That's one thing. Um, what I found over time is that th there's a part of it, like Africa, the continent, um, the land, the music, the Ubuntu, like just how you connect with the people. Yeah. That part is very, very much who I am on the inside. Um, rhythm, the way that you dance, like, like all those kinds of things really connect you to home. And then also preferences around food, your sense of humor. But I found over time that it is not my country anymore. Uh, when I go back, it doesn't, I don't have the same connection. And I'm not sure if it's because I've, I, I've married, I'm settled here. Um, I've had a baby who's a, you know, a US citizen and all those kinds of things. But over time, it's just not, it doesn't feel the same to me anymore. And I, I don't. Okay. Um, for me, it's completely different because my mom and my siblings are all still living in Africa. And mm -hmm. so when I go back to Guinea, you know, my childhood home is still there. People still live there. Although it looks so different to me now. I remember it looking much bigger when I was younger, I guess because I was younger. But now when I go back, it just looks so small as a, as a house. But I feel very much connected to Guinea. And it just feels like, you know, even though I'm not a citizen of, of Guinea anymore, every time I go back, feel like it's still my home like it's still the place that um that made me who I am I hear you on that and that's definitely the case and there is a feeling about the place that you were born the you know you, you know that you're that's where you're from there's almost like a rhythm and an energy in the yeah. grounds that you connect with mm -hmm. I just I went through a period where I felt like whenever I was in South Africa, I was missing the US. Whenever I was in the US, I was missing South Africa. And you really can't have a foot in two places. Yeah. At a point, you have to sort of make your choice and be there and not compare. Because uh, no matter where you go, there are things that are wonderful and there are things that you don't necessarily agree with and, and things that you wish were different. But you, you have to at a point just you spoke at you actually used the language early on about like embracing it like you felt like you were going to embrace it this is what you're going to do and you yeah. you know you wanted to be fully fledged american when i made that choice especially as an adult the second you know when i moved here in 2008 it was it was a conscious i'm this is what i'm going to do now and i'm i'm probably not going to go back and live there anymore which was it it felt it was like a monumental decision and almost like a severing 
in many senses. And I still have uh, all my husband's family is there, all my cousins, my aunts, everybody's there. It's just my mom, dad, and my sister that are here. The rest of our family is there, but it just doesn't. And so many close friends also, it just no longer has the, I don't have the same connection as, as I used to. Thank you very much, Genevieve and Carla, for sharing your heartfelt and informative experiences on your path to citizenship in part one of this episode. Up next, listen to part two where Genevieve and Carla share how becoming a U.S. citizen was linked to their desire to vote in this country. Well, that's it for this episode of Taylor Shapers of Influence podcast miniseries, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, giving women the right to vote. Well, that wraps up this episode of Taylor Shapers of Influence. To learn more about what we do at Taylor, you can find us at taylorstrategy.com. Looking for more episodes of the podcast? Find us wherever you stream stuff. We're on iTunes and other major streaming platforms. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Taylor Strategy. Thanks for stopping by and tuning in. Peace.